Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. So excited to welcome Kelly Sturette to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. Kelly, I have been following your stuff forever. Every once in a while, I feel like I accomplished something that day and my work is done. And then I look up and see what you do in a given day. (laughs) And geez, does that get me rolling. Um, So, I mean, if you don't know who the hell Kelly Sturette is, I don't know what you've been watching. But Kelly... Give us some background on what you're currently obsessed with and what got you to where you are now. That's a good question. Thank you for having me on and uh, PT nerd brother and sisters uh, out there. I, I hear you and see you. Um, I was a professional athlete, high level paddler in short story. My whole life was about that. And uh, there's a through narrative, I think through a lot of my life, which is obsession. Like Juliet's my wife now currently was like, she's like, I think you're stuck in one of these obsessive phases. And I'm like, what? Huh? And I paddled myself right off the national team with an injury, with a brachial plexus injury, hand got numb, definitely pinched, compressed, you know, nervous tissue at the neck, terrible asthma, sympathetic driver. I was taking 30 puffs of my rescue inhaler every day. I had to rest, you know, register my inhaler with the IOC. Um, no internal rotation, all mouth, chest breathing, all unilateral movement, you know, 11, 11 days, uh, 11 sessions a week in the boat and just led to a neck that didn't turn or a shoulder that didn't work. And of course now in retrospect, I'm like, well, that was stupid. That was my fault. But that moment when that was taken away from me really began to color, I think the view, not the view I have currently in today, not as oh, I couldn't do be a professional athlete anymore. I want to also be a physical therapist. And, but that was the first time when my body didn't allow me to do something. And I couldn't express my role in society. And that was an existential threat. I couldn't do my job. And, you know, fast forward uh, to today, and suddenly I'm a classically trained physical therapist. I went to a, what I think was a really, really good school at the right time. When they were just school, I went to Samuel Merritt University in Oakland. And at the time, it was one of the few sort of private institutions that had a very heavy clinical base where all the teachers were working teachers. We were attached at the hip to the World Center for PNF at Kaiser Vallejo. And then we had incredible instructors from were NDT masters at Herrick. And then all of these heavy Australian manual therapists through Kaiser. And so we laughed because I just saw one of my friends, a classmate recently, and we were laughing about, because he's at the VA, that we had the greatest manual skills education ever, pain theory, Maitland, like we got it all, exercise selection, zero. Actually, zero. actually coaching people, zero. Actually getting people stronger, zero. But everything else, world-class. So it came out of that, and my second year of physio school, I think first semester, second year, I started a gym. I started um, San Francisco CrossFit because everyone who's gone to physical therapy school knows there's a bunch of time and it's easy to do that. So I had so a easy. baby. I had a baby and I started a, a gym and did all the coaching six days a week. 
before school and after school and knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I even sat down with my instructor, like the first day of physio school and was like, you know, my, my mentor. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And she kind of read me the riot act that how dare you have an idea of what you know. And, and I can understand from her view and lens what's possible with physio today and what we're seeing and how people are practicing, how we've expanded service and rethought about the problems that didn't exist. And so she came out and this is really important because when we see people coming out of programs or, or coaches coaching a certain way, you have to look at their lineage. Why do they believe what they believe? Where did they come from? Why did those people adopt that set, those sets of beliefs? And I think, imagine that, you know, suddenly we're like, hey, we have this diagnostic tool called strength and conditioning, and we don't need these corrective exercises. It's, if you don't have a formal language of strength and conditioning, corrective exercises are great because they really do are kind of subcomponents. They're great skill transfer exercises for people who don't have a movement language. But if you have a, a formal language of strength and conditioning, you have regression and progression out, you know, out the gills. So you can see why Shirley Sarmon believed what she believed. And then you're like, okay, now let's stand up and see if we can put our arms over our head and squat at the same time. Oh, the dead bug is just sort of like an iterative, you know, lumbar control for overhead squatting or doing something in the real world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fast forward suddenly where I'm in physio school and my wife and I own a gym and suddenly I'm confronted with, wow, this language that we're speaking in class doesn't really reflect the realities of what's happening in the way people are training or my own experience mm -hmm. as an athlete or my own experience training and, and Olympic lifting and powerlifting. And so I really struggled to kind of reconcile those two things. And it seems obvious now, but in 2004, 2005, it was not obvious at all. Um, and, you know, the world has changed really almost 20 years, pretty dramatically. You couldn't buy a kettlebell in San Francisco back then. It's you amazing. had to drive to Santa Cruz to a plate against sports, which had, they imported kettlebells and then you would buy a kettlebell. So it was like a, you know, two hour drive to buy a kettlebell. So now you can buy them at Target. I mean, really, I think people have forgotten where we were. And so the gym really starts to color my practice as does my experience because we were so attached deeply to Kaiser at the time, Kaiser Vallejo. And I did my, my six month rotations at Kaiser did, you know, inpatient and outpatient there. And I saw that patients weren't being evaluated for up towards six to eight weeks. It was taking long people to get evaluated by a physio. And then the, the schedules were so impacted that you'd get a half hour in two weeks, you know? And so that really colored my vision about, well, who owns this really? And how effective can a conversation with a physio be in this thing? And the original Maitland model everyone knows is you saw someone three to five times a week. Yeah. Like, man, if I put anyone with anyone three to five times a week, we're really going to understand. Even the questions that were kind of in the classic Maitland textbook are, how did you feel in the first 12 hours? How did you feel in the first 24 hours? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how did you feel it's when crazy. you left the session? And like that stuff is out. And so we really started realizing as people were coming in, that there was this movement control component, skill component. And oftentimes the people who were having musculoskeletal pain were still exercising. And people who had musculoskeletal pain also lacked complete range of motion. So what people don't understand is that supple leopard coming up on its 10 anniversary, you know, people are like, where are the objective measures? I mean, the objective measures are normative range of motion. 
Like that's that, like hip flexion. It just happens to be expressed in squatting. And so what we saw was that people didn't, they said they would squat, but then their arch would be collapsed and their knee would be valgus and then they would be overextended and they couldn't breathe. So when we really started connecting the dots, what we found was when we improved people's positions in the weight room, they went faster and all of their niggly problems cleaned up, addressed up. And of course, we still had volume issues, et cetera, et cetera. But what we found was if we improved your position, we can improve your performance. And then restoring someone's position if they had pain and injury was a really effective way to get them back. And so suddenly we had this just spectrum of, yes, we may need to bias the physiology temporarily, but ultimately it's about can you do these fundamental movements that express the bookmarks of physiologic range. And now we're still trying to do that today. Your, I mean, okay, your stream of consciousness is absurd because do you even remember the question that I asked you at the beginning yeah. of that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, that was very impressive. What I think you just described is what sports physical therapy is. And yes. I, and you it didn't, didn't exist before. It sports didn't physical exist. therapy was like, oh, I'm going to do traditional physical therapy on someone who has a tendinopathy in their elbow. That's what it meant. So like, oh, you actually do a sport instead of a work? That's what it used to be. Yep. Right? And, and so you flipped that, and, and so that's, that's really impressive, and you really did. Uh, two questions in my mind come out of that. Uh, first and foremost, why the hell are schools still teaching like they did in 04 with you, there is no progression from Sarman to under a barbell? Um, I still think it's very hard to get that in the academic setting. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that, do you still see that when students come towards you? What we don't assume is that everyone has a, a movement language, right? So I've been fortunate enough to teach on all the continents except Antarctica. And what we see is that everyone knows what a push-up is. And a push-up mm -hmm. is short lever shoulder extension and very functional, but actually expresses normative shoulder extension. And, and it's a universal language. I don't have to explain what a push-up is. I've taught in Russia. I've taught in, in Korea. I mean, literally everyone knows what a push-up is. So one of the problems is that we haven't all agreed on a moving language. And I just think that that's an opportunity to say, yeah. well, what are the, what is the formal diagnostic program in strength and conditioning? And what we, what we see is even if someone came out of physio school and spoke Pilates, they'd be able to connect that and have a movement language, a diagnostic language. The problem is Pilates doesn't get you to the Olympics. It doesn't get you yeah. to boot camp. It doesn't get right. It's it, Joseph wasn't messing around. And if you understand Pilates, you understand Olympic lifting. If you even had a movement language like yoga, you would still be able to construct what is essential and foundational about standing on one leg or hip flexion. Mm -hmm. You know, why is downward dog so seminal for the calves? Well, it's working on, you know, dorsiflexion in a long lever position, which is very different than working on dorsiflexion in a squat short lever position. Right. And by the way, it's all, yes. And it's also in a closed chain position. And I think that gets lost, right? I think we totally mix up open and closed chain. And if you're not controlling it in closed chain, especially lower extremity, it ain't going to help you. It's well to say that that may be not as true. It may be if that you're so deconditioned, I can give you some open chain exercises or, uh, if I need to babysit a tissue and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, if I need to get you to move and all you can do because you can't weight bear is move your leg around in space, valuable at the time to highlight physiology. But to your point, what's the goal? The goal is the right. person needs to walk around, pick stuff up, put it over their head, 
moving th through the environment. And that doesn't look very much like my leg is in space free, right? That my foot right, is right. disconnected to the ground. And, so and I, I think, I you think you're, you're exactly right. And, and you mentioned that time and again, uh, the ability to scale, the ability to progress, the ability to regress. There's room in the rehab world for your ankle alphabet. It's not the end all. And I think that's a struggle that I see with my students coming out is like, okay, how do we go from af ankle alphabet to whatever the goal is? What are the steps in between? What, what happens if they can't do an ankle alphabet? You'd like, like, how do we scale and progress? I think that's missing in the current construct. You fill in that hole tremendously. So one is that we are starting to see a generation of physios who are teaching like yourself, who are of a strength and conditioning background. So right. The glacial pace is the breakneck pace. This is how long it takes to change and reform institutions. If you're feeling frustrated as a physio, how are you improving the education of the students coming out? Are you engaged with your local university or your local program? Are you giving opportunities to say, even if like you can't babysit students or take a student, again, I don't mean pejorative, if you can't uh, mentor a student for a rotation because your place isn't appropriate for that, they can at least come in and lift with you, train with you, be exposed to you. And we did that a lot with UCSF. We had a lot of the UC students come in and just work out with us, train with us, coach with us. We, we gave them all our resources so that they could go back and, and better reform from the inside. Um, there are certainly schools that are taking a lot more seriously, but uh, some of this stuff, it does take a minute to change. I mean, it just, it takes a second. And if the language is... Um, foot alphabets, which what you see is the, the creeping of what happens when the system isn't set up to have long enough time to teach someone a complicated problem, right? It's, it's sort of like the original Instagram, you know, TikTok solution. I have 30 minutes with you. Am I really going to be able to talk meaningfully about your lack of sleep and your stress in your life and your nutrition choices? Where am I going to have those behaviors? And then where am I going to be able to say, hey, look, at this point, you're doing this. And now we need to start getting you to step up and control it on, you know, either in one leg or by, you know, bipedal. And, and what you end up seeing is the space for that is actually in a strength and conditioning environment. Right. where I can right. see someone three to five times a week instead of saying, here's the minimum dose to get you out of pain, which is what we've been doing. So we've been disingenuous about what our intentions are. We actually don't get, once someone's pain-free, we really don't have many rationales. I'm going to keep seeing you until you have full dorsal flexion. Well, that's a great business model that no one's going to pay for. So, you know, and I see that we're only way we're going to get that, that ankle to work as we work upstream and improve your hip extension. Oh, by the way, I don't even get paid for that. So okay. let's keep in mind that what, one of the things you said about the ankle alphabet is, uh, you know, I had, a I think picking up marbles with your feet is for me, the example of the ankle alphabet. That's like, you know, the thing that drives me the craziest that's unskilled care. Why are you paying for that? Why are we charging for that? Why isn't that someone has figured that out on their own? And because I really want to get to the fact that I actually have a ton of education and I can really manage complex problems in a holistic different way than the average person. But if this is the only thing I'm spending my time doing, I never get to flex that muscle. And that is a problem. So I think yeah. we are, and the internet is taking that away from physio for sure. I mean, you can just go onto TikTok and be like, oh, I just rehab my own ACL because it was all transparent.
What's up, guys? It's Yoni from True Sports Physical Therapy. We are always looking for awesome sports PTs. Our practice is super unique. We are in network with insurance, but we spend one-on-one time for 45 minutes every single session with our athletes. We are housed in state-of-the-art facilities. High ceilings, big open turf spaces, racks, barbells, weights. It is a performance facility with the world's best sports physical therapist housed within them. And we want to add to our team and grow our team of awesome sports physical therapists. We offer awesome salaries, great benefits, more importantly, the ideal setup to provide the highest levels of care to the highest levels of athletes. We have awesome continuing education benefits. We have career ladders. We designed this practice to suit both the patient and the athletic patient, as well as the sports PT. So if you're interested in joining an awesome growing company, reach out. You can send us an email at pod at truesportspt.com. Um, so those are all really good points. Um, listening to your story, your origin story, how you went through grad school, you're managing a gym, you, you throw in a couple kids and, and a, a wife and all the things you're trying to do. That resonates with me because when I found Kelly Starrett, it was just YouTube. And I was totally done with the profession. I, I was out. I was working in a clinic that said that they did sports and they did not. We'll get into that a little bit later. I was you know, promised all these amazing things as a profession and I'm looking at 30 minutes maybe, one-on-one time. I didn't even have the skill set to really get anyone anywhere. I was walking around a clinic wearing jeans, which drove me nuts. And then there is Kelly Starrett. And he's like so passionate about what we can do as professionals. And it totally opened my mind to how I'm going to coach, how I'm going to teach, how I'm going to interact. No longer is the PT this super sterile being, but we're coaches and we're athletes and we're teaching other people how to do that, whatever it means. And so that leads to my question, which is, I was so burnt out. You helped me with that. How the hell were you not burnt out? And how do you manage that now? Mm. Uh, look, one of the things that I just want everyone to hear is that this problem has been solved. Whatever problem you have has been solved in another field already. One of the things that we were promised was this grand interdisciplinary approach where I got to work with other teams of professionals and got my mind. That didn't happen at all. You know, and why? Because there was just the schedules too impacted. How can you meaningfully even get ahead or plan ahead and in physio school, I was certainly burned out. I was under slip. You can see that I go from like hair to no hair very quickly, right? And, same, um, same. Yes. And uh, one is running everything through this filter really helps. Does this decision get me closer to time with my wife and my kids or not? That's the only thing that matters. And I think people are willing to burn themselves to the ground in search of some professional validation. And meanwhile, you don't, your parachute is burning behind you and your parachute is your family. That's your, your, your emergency brakes, your support mechanism, your airbags, everything's there. So you really have to be thinking about how is this decision impacting quality of life? And it's okay. There was a time where Juliet is an attorney. You know, she's a full-time attorney. We have two babies. Um, we're also running, uh, you know, two businesses, theoretically, Mobility Wad and you know, the, the nascent ready state and Jim, and she's an attorney and we have two babies. And, you know, we were like, we're going to put our heads down and get out of student loan debt. 
And, but the, the issue is that you can work hard at super maximal levels for a while, then you can't. And if you haven't done that, welcome to why we study professional sports and high environment, you know, high energy environments, because we find that there are a lot of lessons that have been solved. What you, one of the things that Julia and I have come to realize is that we're actually more stressed now with bigger jobs. We're responsible for a ton of people. We're, we're really are busy. And I, I don't mean that in like we're as busy as anyone else is busy, but as we've gone faster, we've developed a bigger set of breaks. And that's what you have to have is a set of breaks where you can be on and off. And give me, and give me examples of some of those breaks. We protect our sleep. Like it's our job. Like that is the most important aspect of our entire routine is that we do not mess around with our sleep. And we'd love to watch the next Apple Plus TV show, but we're in bed in the nines. We've slammed our magnesium and we just protect, we protect our sleep like it's our job. We are lucky now that we can afford a sauna and we spend a lot of time in the sauna, which kind of forces that hard reset. Um, yeah. You know, we, uh, we, are at a place now where we've sort of figured out where the margins are. And sometimes, I mean, I just came back from a session where I did uh, 11 days straight of, you know, travel, teach, work, you know, the whole thing. It, sometimes it's going to be out of, out of balance. And I think one of the problems with what we've done is we've set it up so that you're either on the gas and then you're instead of, and you're never on the break. So you need to either be full open or on the break. And I don't think we're doing a good job of being on the break necessarily. And then you bring up a really good point about your own experience is that if you're working in a system where it doesn't feel sustainable, like you can find, you know, when we were racing, there was a speed that the boat went that we called the effortless effort speed. And that at that speed, it was sort of maximum hole speed at this set amount of energy and we can maintain that. And if we wanted to go a little faster, it was twice the energy and that is an unsustainable pace. So finding sort of the cruising speed of your, your life matters. But when you realize that you're not at that cruising speed and you're all the things that you thought you could accomplish, you cannot change that system from within. We've learned that Buckminster Fuller talked about that in order. If you see a system that isn't working, the only way to change that system is not from within, but to go out and create an alternative model that makes the other one obsolete. And we're finally seeing that you, you know, Danny Matei, Frank Benedetto, like there are starting to see people out there proposing alternative models where you can buy back your time. I'm not saying that you're going to work any less, but the motivations yeah. and the, the, the outcomes are going to be very different. And, and that means we may be facing a split in our profession where there's this, I'm dealing with very acute care. And I need this, this babysitting of tissues and the modulation of, of managing very acute symptoms. And that looks very much like inpatient PT or very subacute, you know, surgery. And then we move to phase two physio, which is return to sport. And that, that might be different. And we may need professionals here and professionals here. We might need to kind of call that out instead of saying, well, I see a physical therapist. What you mean? for bed mobility in this hospital, you know, because I was in a car accident or because I'm yeah. trying to get you to the Olympics. Those are not the same things. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's like a totally different profession. And I would say that, you know, sports PT, it is a different profession. One that, um, 
I don't think you're given the tools to through grad school. And I totally get it. No. They have to teach you how to do everything, right? They, well, they and really you. the question is, what would you cut out? What do you, what do you remove from grad school? Yeah, I, 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 I don't. I, you know, I'm like, you have to add another year. <laughs> you know, right. I don't know I think, what well, you do. I think you have, either I think you have to add another year or, um, you know, there's systems like this. There are educational systems like this where you just make your decision which path you're going to take earlier on, right? So is it that important for me to learn uh, wound care as a sports PT? I, Probably not. So let me just make that decision earlier. Uh, I mean, may, maybe that's maybe that's some type of solution. Now, um, we're, we're going to get all the way into clinical stuff, but I, I want to know as a By the way, I was, I was a wound care ninja. Just want you to know. Of course, you were. I could but, I could peel the kiwi in one peel. Just so everyone knows. I'm and I literally was just quoting this to a patient of mine who uh, I was like, "Hey, wounds heal in most environments. What are you doing?" Why are you bandaging that? I was like, thank you, wound care. There you go. Yeah, so, so you learned. That's probably also where you came into hyperbaric oxygen, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, like there's carryover. Um, okay, so as, as a business owner myself, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about business. And I saw, you know, you came out with um, Supple Leopard, which was a game changer. And sometimes I wonder, how the hell did that happen? So you had this idea. Can you just walk me through a couple of the steps, maybe some of the struggles? How do you take an idea from Kelly Starrett's brain and all of a sudden it's a New York Times bestseller? God knows it wasn't overnight. How do you take an idea like that to market? Three words, cocaine. No, <laughs> uh, um, one is remember none of this happens in a vacuum, right? I think that's, that's the key is that I had this um, – I was part of the early CrossFit phenomenon and I, it, it needs to be said that. And CrossFit means a lot of different things to a lot of people. It's like saying physical therapist, right? There is the, you know, just do as much work as you can, as fast as you can. And then there's this higher expression that looks a lot more like sports preparation training, really thoughtful programming. Um, you know, intensity can be a lot of different things. So I'm on this early phase we discover CrossFit when there are four CrossFits in the world, maybe three CrossFits in the world. And we became the 21st CrossFit in the world. There are what, 15,000? We're 21. So early on, I was like, hey, Jay Star, I read this little manifesto by this guy named Greg Glassman, and I tried one of these workouts and it buried me. Five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 air squats for 20 minutes. And I got through 12 rounds and was just dizzy and terrible. And I'm a national champion. I'm a good athlete. Juliet is a three-time world champion at this point. And, uh, and then I tried the second easiest one, which is some front squats to presses and some pull-ups. That's only 45 reps. It seems super reasonable. And I literally, I just find out I'm not very skilled. I'm not very strong. I'm not very fit. What was nice about uh, being in the gym was that suddenly I had to confront what a movement practice looked like. I had to confront what Mashi Feldenkrais had solved, what other people had solved, Pilates, you know, what do, what's essential? And in the programming, how do I represent all the exposure that a person could need in three to five hours a week? So Hold really on, confronted Kelly, with gonna, that. Kelly, I'm going to cut you off and I'm going to do something that probably not many people can do. I'm going to teach you something. Ready? It's Moshe. Moshe, Moshe. Feldenkrais. All right. All right. There you go. My <laughs> go Israeli is probably okay. not very good. I apologize to everyone out there. That's why everyone just says Feldenkrais. And, Feldenkrais. Uh, right. Feldenkrais. Like, you know. You just say, you know, you, but you have to say I to Rolf. You don't just say Rolf, right? It's, Correct. It's too confusing. You Thank yes. you. Moshe. No problem. Go ahead. So um, in that time, again, starting to ask what is essential. And 
my own, really one of my decent skill sets is pattern recognition. So I start to understand, oh, there's a whole lot of ways to go overhead and that the technique is the same. And that if I have someone who's competent with a barbell, a kettlebell, a dumbbell, upside down, I start to see that the positions and the techniques are the same. Then I start to understand that our traditional models of strength have always been predicated on either adding more volume, another set, or adding more load. And what we weren't really appreciating was that the demands of real sport were that I needed you to be able to express movement control when your heart rate was really high. And that did not exist anywhere in sports PT clinic, in the language. And so we started saying, well, this is an easy way where we can start to challenge people's position by making you breathe hard. And then I really started to see that if I put, made you do 20 reps, boy, you sucked at that. The first five, great. 20, terrible. And that if you could do 20 reps, but you couldn't do heavy three, I was like, oh, there's something different in your technique. When I asked you to go speed or compete, suddenly what I found was when we could help people become more competent in base movement positions, like an air squat and I, or a, a squat pattern, where I could suddenly challenge that squat pattern with all of those different variables, chances are I was going to elicit a degradation in your technique or a breakdown in your, in, your, in your schema of how to move through the environment. Now, here's the goblet squat. Now, put it on your shoulders. Now, put it over your head. Now, carry it. Now, and so what we had was really the ultimate truth test where if you were competent, then I could, you would pass all these things. It was just work and it was a different stimulus. But what we found was we had the ultimate diagnostic tool to find out that the stimulus for adaptation was also the diagnostic tool that if you went fast, you couldn't hide your, your potential tissue restrictions or lack of skill. And so suddenly I had a model for understanding what was happening and in a way that people weren't talking about. So I started teaching it and then that teaching, and then we started making videos about it. And at the same time, you know, we were approached because some of the videos that were going, you know, going off, people were really thirsty for. And what I had was a, a course I had taught a hundred times already that was a framework for a book. And that's how we, we got into there was me being a clinician on the ground floor, coaching, trying to solve this movement problem and movement competency problem, but people weren't seeing movement as part of the training equation. And the physical therapists thought I had lost my mind. They didn't understand that it was about I didn't think output. that. I did not think that. So, okay. But then when, okay. Yeah. It's a great idea. Who comes to you and says, Kelly, you got to write a book. Is that J star? She, she says it. And then oh, no, 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 for sure not. Julie and I are just like, keeping please, our heads above water. She's like, please don't write a book. So who says <laughs> write a book? Um, remember that you are in a community and it's crucial to, to rec remember that. So Rob Wolf was an early coach and friend of ours. And he wrote a book called like the paleo solution. And it was a New York times bestseller. And he, his publisher knew me through Rob and reached out and said, Hey, we'd like to help you write a book. And that was how that, that happened. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, you know, people ask all the time, can I be on your podcast? I'm like, I'm not sure that's how it works. You know, like do something really interesting and then people will ask you to be on their podcast, you know, and mm -hmm. the same thing happens, you know, publishing has changed radically in 10 years. You can self-publish and if you have something important to say, you should write it down. 
because it really is, you know, it's so easy to cherry pick and, and coaches like to do this. They cherry pick a picture that they don't like, has a weird vantage. And they, and I'm like, well, did you actually read the content around it? Or did you read the, you know, it's so, that book is so dense. And if we ever put another edition out, it'll have another hundred pages, including the movement assessment, our movement tests. Uh, you know, I've already restructured the whole book, but at the time, the real question in this, and I think was the really subversive question was, how can we help people take a crack at making themselves feel better, improving their positions? And does that require another professional person in the room? If, you know, we can move beyond press and guess and we can start taking a systems approach, but the first order of business in there is movement. And the second order of business is if we can mobilize to change the movement, that's our objective change. And then the truly objective change, not as just your hip range of motion, but if I improve your function, I should improve your biomotor output, your wattage, your poundage. And that was really a different approach. It's a super different approach because now you're starting to blend this very clinical side to this performance side. Um, and, and that's like a, a beautiful gray area where sports PTs, I think, should live. And I think that really comes out of your yeah. book. Yeah. Sports PT, um, performance PT, performance therapy. I'm not sure what the word is for there that, you know, I chose mobility. If, you, if you've ever used that word, you're welcome. The only people Thank who you. had uh, used that word was um, physical therapists when we mobilize a tissue. That's literally where that came from, comes from. Yeah. And I specifically chose that over range of motion or flexibility or, you know, pliability or, you know, any of these abilities because I was like, it doesn't describe what we're trying to talk about here, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you did an awesome job of creating that. So. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your honesty. I look forward to continuing the conversation. I bet you we'll do this again. Thanks for listening to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. If you'd like more information on today's episode, please visit us online at truesportspt.com. True Sports, what sports rehab should be.